Welcome to Blockchain Explained, the podcast about opportunities, challenges, and trends in blockchain technology. Whether you're a beginner or an expert, a developer, or just crypto curious, this podcast is for you. It features industry leaders and government officials discussing the world of distributed ledgers, cryptocurrencies, and the metaverse. And now, here are your hosts, Alan Rickshoffen and Kelly Wicker. Welcome to another episode of Blockchain Explained. I'm Kelly Wicker, Director of the Science and Technology Innovation Program at the Wilson Center, and I'm coming to you with my co-host, Alan Rickshoffen, who chairs the Digital Assets Forum here at Wilson. We're joined today by Colin Lloyd, a partner in Sullivan Cromwell's Commodities, Futures and Derivatives and Capital Markets Groups. Colin regularly advises clients in relation to blockchain, digital assets, and other emerging financial technologies. And he's been recognized as a cryptocurrency, blockchain, and fintech trailblazer by the National Law Journal. We're privileged to have you here. Thanks so much, Colin. Now, I'm going to kick us off by confessing I'm going to be a little out of my depth today because we're talking finance, finance, finance. Alan, you teach at NYU on financial instruments, so you're very much in your element here. I know we were hoping to have special focus on the court ruling on Ripple. Can we break that down, break down the importance of that case for those of us who are not as well-versed with the world of finance and securities? Sure. So I'll kick this off, uh, Kelly. And and I teach at the law school, but what I, 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 I teach financial instruments, but I teach it at the law school. And so much of what I do is focused on the regulatory construct around financial instruments. And cryptocurrency is a classification of financial instrument. And definitionally, um, it's important to understand how a financial instrument works in order to understand the regulatory construct around that financial instrument. So something doesn't have to be called a security to be a security or be called a commodity to be a commodity. And definitions become important based on use cases. So Colin and I know each other um, a long time now. Uh, we've been working together because Colin makes my life a lot easier because I'll have him be a guest professor at NYU. So I, I, I'm going to ask Colin to really kick off and tell us what happened in the Ripple case. And uh, what I'd like to do, Colin, if it's okay with you and, and with, with Kelly's introduction, I think it's appropriate, is really break down how securities laws apply to this incredible technology of blockchain and, and the use cases like cryptocurrency and, and also how the commodity laws and various financial regulatory constructs aside from securities and financial um, uh, regulatory constructs using commodity laws, what, what regulatory framework there is today and what regulatory frameworks are proposed. And sort of kicking it off with the story of the Ripple case, I think is a great place to start because it sort of encompasses everything I just, you know, gave you 40,000 foot overview of. Yeah, so the case is super interesting because, you know, the, there is not a kind of a functional definition of what is a security. The definition of a security in the securities laws is essentially a list, a list of different things that Congress decided in 1933 and 1934 you know, would constitute security. So you have stock, you have notes, you know, you have certain types of later on certain types of options contracts. There is, however, a kind of catch-all term uh, for uh, an investment contract. Um, and that was interpreted by the Supreme Court in the seminal Howey decision from 1946, which related to, you know, contracts concerning the cultivation of, of orange groves. Um, you know, that an investment contract is, is a, con a situation where you have a contract scheme or arrangement uh, whereby there's an investment of money uh, and a common enterprise uh, 
with the uh, expectation of profits uh, from the efforts of others. Um, and because you know cryptocurrencies obviously weren't invented back in the 1930s or in, or in the 1940s, um, when the SEC is seeking to apply the securities laws to cryptocurrencies, in most instances, they can't just look at the classic kind of prongs for stocks or, or notes or things like that because most cryptocurrencies don't have the kind of economic and contractual uh, uh, attributes of you know traditional stock, for example. And so they have to go to this catch-all term for, uh, for investment contracts. Uh, and uh, what was interesting about that case, the case did a few things. One is the judge, Judge Torres in the Southern District of New York, said that the a cryptocurrency, in this case XRP, all by itself is not a security. For the same reason that the orange groves in that Howey case that I mentioned aren't themselves uh, securities. Instead, she looked at all of the facts and circumstances associated with particular transactions in XRP that were the object of the SEC's lawsuit. And she went kind of category by category for these different transactions and she analyzed the facts and circumstances of each of those and the question was were those particular transactions uh, themselves uh, investment contracts she looked at three different categories she looked at one category uh, which involved ripple the, the sort of company that uh, sort of developed some of the software and ecosystem around uh, around the xrp cryptocurrency she said that, well, when they went and they sold XRP pursuant to special contracts of certain institutional uh, investors where they gave marketing materials to those investors talking about all the things that Ripple would do to promote the value of XRP. They had lockup provisions and indemnification provisions and other things that you would kind of customarily see in some sort of offering, a securities offering context. She said, well, those, those particular sales were investment contracts. Now, I think what she did next, interestingly, is she looked at other type situations where Ripple sold XRP, both kind of blind bid-ask transactions on anonymous exchanges, as well as when Ripple just kind of distributed XRP to certain uh, you know, potential users of the cryptocurrency or to employees sort of as inducement to get them, you know, as sort of a reward for them, their involvement in the ecosystem. And she said those two latter categories did not involve investment contracts because the manner in which Ripple was offering uh, uh, and selling uh, XRP in those instances didn't satisfy the three Howie prongs. Specifically, she said that when Ripple was selling XRP anonymously on exchanges, and they were only about 1% of the volume on the exchanges at that time, uh, but that kind of lacked the indicia of investment contract because the people who were buying on the exchange had no idea, you know, whether they were giving their money to Ripple to invest in Ripple's enterprise and profiting from Ripple putting that money to use to develop that enterprise or whether they were just giving them to some other third party who happened to own, you know, XRP. Um, uh, she also said that when Ripple was giving out, you know, the XRP to these uh, uh, kind of participants in the community, that they weren't making any kind of investment of money because they weren't having to, you know, give any specific kind of consideration for uh, uh, to receive XRP. Now, I think there's been a, a kind of 
headline misinterpretation of a decision. Um, a lot of the reporting on it, I think, has been a bit misleading because it's it, it's been suggested that Judge Torres was saying that XRP is a security when it's sold to institutional investors, but not a security when it's sold to retail investors on an exchange. That is not what she said. You know, what she said is that XRP itself in no instance is a security. It can be sold, however, as part of an investment contract. And in deciding whether it was sold as part of an investment contract, she looked at the facts and circumstances of what Ripple was actually out there saying and doing vis-a-vis the purchasers, which was a different set of uh, statements and representations and agreements for the institutional purchasers than what it was when they were just trading anonymously on exchanges. And she was not suggesting that for some reason retail investors, when they buy cryptocurrency, don't deserve the protections of the securities laws versus institutional investors getting those protections. That was not 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 what she was getting at. What she was getting at was what I think most would say is the right way to look at Howie, which is that you have to look at the facts and circumstances of each transaction on its own. And it happened to be the case in her analysis that the facts and circumstances and those kind of blind transactions on an exchange didn't have the indicia of an investment uh, contract. So, Colin, let, let me try to understand. So you're saying that there's this thing that they made called Ripple, which is the cryptocurrency. And and, and maybe you'll explain what the use case is for it um, also. But there's this thing that they made. And that thing is not a security. So if I make a stock, it is a security because stocks inherently have something about people making money together built into them. But this thing that they made, this thing called Ripple, was out there as just an item. It's a commodity, for lack of a better way to describe it. It's a thing that's out there, but transactions around that commodity, that item, those transactions are are securities, but the underlying or, item is not. Is that correct? But that, that's right. And that, again, that's not uh, unusual, right? So the courts have uh, develop tests for when something constitutes a stock, and they look at things like the ability to participate in profits uh, 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 via payment of dividends, the ability to participate in governance, uh, things uh, like that. Um, for something, however, that is not a stock and it's not a bond, right? Not a note, right? It's not an evidence of uh, of indebtedness. Um, then you kind of have to look to this catch-all, and the investment contract catch-all has been used over the years for all kinds of different instruments that are not themselves, you know, securities, right? You have, as I said, in Howie, there are orange groves. There are cases that involve someone selling whiskey casks. There are cases where people are, are selling kind of live animals that are, you know, being used to, to breed other animals. Uh, uh, there are, you know, cases involving payphones, right? Clearly, none of those things themselves are securities, but they can be sold as part of an overall investment contract scheme or arrangement in circumstances where someone is giving their money to the promoter uh, in exchange for the promoter making promises about what the promoter is going to do, you know, with respect to that person's money in order to create profits for them where there's some sort of pooling of money as among the different investors, uh, which is horizontal commonality uh, or pooling of money as between the investors and the promoter, which is what the courts refer to as vertical commonality. But that has nothing to do with respect to the underlying asset. You know, you could create an investment contract out of darn near anything, 
Uh, and that doesn't change the categorization of the underlying asset. It just it, it results in securities laws applying to the relationship between the promoter uh, and the asset purchaser. But the flip side of that is that you could also create an an asset, you know, a an animal that in and of itself is inherently an investment contract, correct? So if I say that I'm going to issue a cryptocurrency and everyone who buys that cryptocurrency gets a percentage of the profit of some business or percentage of some some uh, financial arrangement that I have, then that would in and of itself be a security, whereas the, the use case of Ripple is what made it different. So it's not, I, I, I think I'm understanding that it's not a blanket statement that cryptocurrencies are not security. It's saying that this particular use case that this Ripple item was used for, and maybe you can go into the use case a little bit, that that was not a security in and of itself. Is that correct? Yeah, so I think the, it's fair to say the securities laws, at least the categorization of things as securities are technology neutral, right? If I, if I took some stock, and I put it on a blockchain. I use blockchain technology to uh, record who has ownership of the stock. It's still a stock, you know. Um, and and the fact that I might call it a crypto stock doesn't change uh, its legal categorization. Um, here, uh, and this is true, I think, for most of the most widely traded cryptocurrencies, it doesn't have those instruments. And in fact, it doesn't it doesn't uh, uh, represent any kind of contractual relationship whatsoever between the promoter or issuer of the asset and the holder of the asset. There was nothing inherently about XRP just as there's nothing about Bitcoin or Ethereum or, or Dogecoin or any of these other coins that creates some sort of contractual relationship, some entitlement, um, some legal relationship between the holder of the asset uh, and the promoter or issuer. Um, XRP happens to have you know, a use case principally as a means of, of payment. Uh, the, the, the thing that it's used most commonly for by Ripple is uh, uh, as a means of facilitating cross-border payments in a way that is, uh, in their view, cheaper and, and, and more efficient than the kind of uh, uh, international wire transfer processes that otherwise, you know, would apply. Um, uh, but it clear, but importantly, to your point, Alan, if I own XRP, I can't go to Ripple and demand that they pay me anything. Um, I have no right against them. Uh, and uh, that is very different from someone who owns stock or, or bonds or any other type of uh, traditional uh, security. This actually, so it, it's, this is entirely really helpful because a lot of what you're talking about that the news has been talking about in a certain way, that's what I've been reading. So this concept of the decision meant that sometimes it was a security and sometimes it wasn't. The way that you're describing it sounds much more clear. Like the, it's not, it's, it's not that XRP is itself a security or not a security. It is when it is being deployed, if it's being deployed in a contract, that would constitute a securities arrangement. This is all very woo difficult. A, a, con a contract that a contract that is um, that meets the criterion of an investment contract. If that's yeah. the way it's it's being distributed. That contract right. is the problem, not the underlying stuff that they're moving around. So I'll, I'll give you an example, Kelly, of, an, of another case that I think makes it easier. Um, so uh, I mentioned there was a case about payphones, right? And so in, in that case, like if I, 
if I bought uh, a payphone, okay, and I, I was responsible for maintaining it, and I collected all the, I guess, used to be quarters that people would use, you know, or dimes, depending on when you were using it, you know, to, to use a payphone, then then clearly that payphone's not a security. Colin, right? you, may, you, may, you may have to, for our younger viewers, have to explain what a payphone is, but that's okay. <laughs> Forget about the quarters. Yeah, but. yeah exactly. Um, but if instead, um, what I did is I bought up a bunch of payphones and I went to you and, and to Alan and to all the viewers and said, hey, if you give me this money, I'll lease the payphone to you, but I'll manage the payphones. I'll keep them you know, in operation. I'll collect the money and I'll distribute to you a cut of the money that I receive. Okay, That was held to be an investment contract. But payphones themselves were still just payphones, right? The Howey case is another example. In that case, you had someone who was saying, I'm going to uh, sell to these people orange groves, okay? But in addition to that, they would enter into contracts with me where I would agree to maintain and cultivate the oranges, sell the oranges, and then deliver a portion of the proceeds back to the people who purchased the orange groves from me. The orange groves themselves were not securities. The oranges were not securities. If I, if 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 someone bought uh, Mr. Howie's, you know, oranges at the supermarket and then sold them to someone else, they weren't engaged in a securities transaction. Okay, but what was a securities transaction was the offer and sale of this overall arrangement, where instead of someone buying stock in some company that managed a bunch of orange groves, they at least as a formal matter bought the orange groves themselves together with this, you know, set of land management uh, uh, contracts. And it w and it's sensible, right? It was meant to avoid situations where people would, would kind of have form over substance to get around the securities laws, but really what they were selling were interest in a business enterprise, okay? Um, and the difference here is that what Judge Torres is saying is when, when Ripple was selling the XRP to institutional purchasers, they were doing so pursuant to marketing arrangements, contractual arrangements, which kind of amounted to selling to those purchasers kind of a, an interest in Ripple's business enterprise. But when Ripple was just blindly selling XRP on exchanges to people and people had no clue whether they were buying from Ripple or they were buying from Allen, you know, um, those people were not participating in any kind of investment contract. They were just buying an asset. But Colin, you mentioned Ethereum before. What about if in, in a case where um, miners know that if they if they record data in a blockchain, they're going to get let's call it a check, but they're going to get a little bit of Ethereum for doing that or a little bit of Bitcoin if they're mining a Bitcoin. Um, isn't there some sort of implicit contractual arrangement that's there that could be viewed as an investment contract that's inherent to the underlying item itself, unlike the orange grove? I, I'm not so sure about that because that, that just means that the, the technology operates in a particular way where someone can earn you know more of the asset by doing it. The, the reason it's called mining, I think, is by uh, analogy, but the analogy is, you know, I think an apt one, right? You know, the, the fact that you know that by participating, you know, digging a hole into the ground and going there and finding the underlying mineral that you're going to earn something by, by, by performing that work doesn't mean that you have some sort of investment contract with the, 
you know underlying natural environment right this is it's it's a technology uh itself that inherently produces you know uh, uh the ability for people to um uh, to participate economically in the functioning of that ecosystem and be rewarded for for doing so, but that's not that's not a contract uh, with a particular enterprise um, that is kind of a legally cognizable issuer um, that can perform. And this, and this goes to something that I think um, is really important to think about, at least from a policy perspective. You know, when we talk about some kind of asset uh, or arrangement being a security then that presupposes that there's some sort of issuer of that security who then has a bunch of things they need to do under the securities laws, right? They have to prepare certain disclosures. They have to prepare financial reports. They need to uh, clear their offers and sales, you know, with the SEC if it's being made to the public. Um, in many of these instances, you talk about Bitcoin or Ethereum, there's no real issuer standing there who has the ability to do those, uh, perform those tasks. And so it would be pretty divorced from the um, operation and objectives of the securities laws to consider those assets themselves uh, to be securities because you would have the odd situation of having a, a security with no issuer actually to there step in and perform the duties the securities laws impose. So it, I know one of the reasons this case was being watched so closely was because the industry is in a really uncertain period right now. There's not a lot of clarity on what's going to, what can regulators do? Who does have jurisdiction over these things? Would, in your opinion, does this Ripple decision create any clarity or are we just kicking the can down the road and we're still waiting for someone to definitively say who can or cannot regulate crypto? You know, it's, I, I, I think it's fair to say that uh, litigation is a really imperfect vehicle for giving the kind of clarity that you're talking about. And I, and I say that for, you know, a few reasons. One is uh, this is a specific case involving a specific set of facts and a specific asset. Um, we can certainly draw inferences from it uh, in terms of um, what, you know, what reasoning a court might find to be persuasive, but it's a district court decision. It's not binding precedent on other judges. In fact, uh, just, um, you know, earlier, you know, this week, another judge in the same district um, uh, disagreed with Judge Torres's reasoning um, on a different set of facts at a different set of a uh, point of a process of, of a litigation. Um, but that just goes to show that it's it's hard to draw a lot of certainty from a single district court uh, decision in a single case. Now. Ultimately, you know, these matters could go up on appeal, in which case we might find in, say, the, the Second Circuit, there becomes some sort of law about uh, how to analyze, um, you know, when an investment contract is present with respect to the offer and sale of uh, uh, of an asset. But you, you have to also take into account the fact that each of these cases, the two that I've mentioned, Ripple and the other case, which is the Terraform Labs case, you know, involve situations where the defendant is itself uh, you know, effectively the issuer, right? Not, neither case, you know, truly presents uh, a situation where trading is taking place between parties who are not um, the issuer, which could be analyzed differently. You know, a lesson that I think can be drawn from both cases is that the asset itself, as we've been saying, is not a security. Both judges were clear about that. You have to look at each, you know, transaction 
each offer and sale uh, on its own on its own facts. Um, and so I think that, that that means that although we have a better understanding with these these two rulings at least uh, as to how some some courts might look at this, we don't have the same certainty that will flow from, for example, legislation, uh, which could say could define uh, more categorically um, which assets are and are not. Uh, uh, securities, uh, which are non-security commodities, which should be regulated by which regulator under what, you know, set of rules. And then finally, you know, even if we did get to a situation where there were uh, contra to the Ripple decision, you know, rulings that say the circuit court level or some other higher court level that more broadly conferred the SEC uh, jurisdiction over cryptocurrency transactions, that also would not answer the question of, okay, How's the SEC going to apply the securities laws, you know, to those transactions? For all kinds of questions around what disclosures are appropriate, how how can cryptocurrencies be custodied, all those kinds of things, which are still largely unanswered. Uh, and so I think that it's really hard to draw uh, a line from a single decision or even two decisions to a place where in the U.S. we have the same type of legal certainty around these assets as what's starting to develop in some of the other non-U.S. Uh, jurisdictions that have adopted specific regimes for them. And when you when you say that um, that we don't have clarity on this, I, I'm curious because to, to, in the interest of full disclosure, you represent exchanges. Um, you're not on the government side for this stuff. If you were the the, the general counsel of the SEC, what do you what would you say to this decision? What where did Judge Torres get it wrong? Um, I mean, I, I, <laughs> I, I, I think that, um, you know, I think there are some things that she didn't uh, fully address in detail, right? So, um, you know, there are some footnotes in the, in the decision which are interesting. Um, for example, uh, there were, the SEC made allegations that when, um, uh, when Ripple sold to certain institutional parties and on exchanges for market makers, that uh, those folks were also engaged in resales uh, as essentially underwriters. Um, and if you compare the decision in this case with the decision in the Telegram case from uh, a few years ago, where that court, again, different procedural posture, this was after, this is, the Ripple decision was at a summary judgment stage, the Telegram case as well as more Can, you, you just summarize like in, in two sentences the Telegram case? So. Everyone yeah, so, so the Telegram case invo involved uh, a company called Telegram. They had created a cryptocurrency called Grams, uh, which were going to be used as um, uh, as part of kind of a broader sort of mobile messaging, you know, ecosystem. Um, they had sold those Grams to various institutional purchasers in kind of private or offshore offerings, um, but the SEC alleged that um, that was all part of a broader scheme to distribute those tokens to the retail public, including in the United States, and that, that made those institutional purchasers themselves underwriters and the entire offering, not just the initial sale by Telegram to the institutional purchasers, but their, the institutional purchasers' later resales, part of an overall investment contract uh, arrangement. Uh, and. Uh, the court uh, also uh, in New York uh, agreed with that at, at a motion to dismiss stage. So at that stage in the litigation, the SEC's allegations have to be taken, you know, as 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 true, essentially, whereas at summary judgment, there's been additional fact finding. 
Um, so if a Ripple case was further along than, I've, than that Telegram case. But the interesting part there is, is that the court looked past the initial sale to the resales that did not involve a direct transaction between uh, Telegram and the ultimate uh, purchasers. The SEC made some analogous allegations in the Ripple case. Judge Torres uh, disagreed with them, but on a, on a very conclusory basis in a footnote in the decision uh, and didn't expand on her reasoning for why she disagreed with that. Uh, she also did not address and did not reach uh, 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 the view about whether um, there was some sort of common enterprise among the uh, retail purchasers on the exchanges uh, and each other or common enterprise between them and, uh, and Ripple. And I think many had predicted that if she was going to find in Ripple's favor, it would have been more on that common enterprise prong and that her, uh, one of the areas that she's been criticized on is that uh, she instead rested her decision on this question about whether the retail purchasers had a reasonable expectation of profits based on Ripple's efforts. And I think some would say, and what Judge Rakoff said in, in this week's Terraform Labs decision is, uh, uh, you know, look, the, the representations that were being made out on social media and on websites and things like that were being made sort of on a blanket basis to whoever was purchasing the asset. Um, and so that, that part of Judge Torres's decision where she suggested that the uh, retail purchasers did not um, – you know, shouldn't have been thought of as as really basing their decisions on uh, Ripple's uh, marketing efforts. Um, that's been an area where she's been, you know, she's been criticized, and it seems that in the, you know, different facts, but again analogous that that Judge Rakoff analyzed in the Terraform Labs decision, you know, he he came to a different conclusion. Do you have to know each other to be in a common enterprise? In other words. Can two retail investors, if, if that's what the criterion is, could they be in a common enterprise because they have the same goals and they're trying to accomplish the same sharing of profits, for lack of a better way to describe it? Yeah, do, it's, they have it's to, a, do they have to sit in a room and make that decision or can it be enough just to be doing it? You know, it's, I'll sort of tweak your question a little bit, Alan, uh, which is that, um, you know, I think what you're asking is, is a common interest you know, sufficient to, to have a common enterprise. And I think there the answer really ought to be no. Um, certainly um, everyone who, um, you know, owns, you know, a particular uh, uh, baseball card, right, has an interest in that baseball card accreting in value. Everybody owns a, um, uh you know, everyone who, who is uh, all the oil companies, you know, have an interest mostly in, in oil going up uh, in price. But that does not put them in a common enterprise with each other, even though their interest, you know, are aligned with each other. If we think about the futures markets, right, all the, all the people who are long a particular futures contract have a common interest, but they're not engaged in a common enterprise with each other. Common enterprise is generally thought of by the courts as involving some sort of pooling of funds, um, either as among uh, uh, different, um, um, you know, as as among different investors, which is horizontal commonality, or between the um, uh, the promoter of the uh, investment contract and the uh, and the purchasers. So where 
where does this leave us now then? You know, are what <laughs> are are the are the people who are participating in in purchasing crypto and exchanging crypto are they are they investors? Are they issuers? Are are we going to all be on the hook to sign up for securities <laughs> declarations or what comes next? You know, I, I well, we're going to continue to see litigation here. Right, where these cases are still pending, the SEC could try to seek an appeal of a Ripple decision either now, um, uh, which, which it doesn't have a, a right to do, it, it has to be granted by the court, or later, when there's a final judgment uh, in the case. Um, uh, we should expect, I think, the Terraform Labs litigation that I mentioned to proceed now past the motion to dismiss stage. There's pending litigation against multiple crypto uh, uh, exchanges uh, against Coinbase, against Binance, uh, against um, uh, Bittrex. Um, and uh, we also have legislation pending. I mean, it's, you know, around, uh, 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 you know, over the same period, we've seen um, legislation actually get voted out of the House Financial Services and House Agriculture Committees on a bipartisan basis. You know, multiple Democrats joining the Republicans who, uh, uh, chair those committees to move those bills uh, forward. Um, we've also seen legislation introduced on a bipartisan basis in the Senate. Um, I think people are generally uh, pessimistic uh, that either of those bills will become law um, in this Congress um, because of uh, some of the opposition certainly that exists in the Senate and potentially at, at, at the administration. Um, but I think that there is um, this is one of a few areas, I think, in this current political environment where you are seeing, um, uh, first of all, bipartisanship, um, which is not that common in this environment. Interestingly, the, when you look at the votes um, for the legislation, they don't cleave as much on partisan lines as they do demographically with older Congress people tending to vote against the legislation and younger ones tending to vote you know, in favor of it. Um, you, this is also uh, an interesting area where, and, and Alan, I'm not sure if you've ever seen this before, where you have the same legislation introduced and voted out of both the Financial Services Committee, which oversees the SEC, and the Agriculture Committee, which oversees the CFTC, where those two committees are agreeing about how to allocate jurisdiction you know, between them, which, at least in my career, I've never seen that um, uh, before. So I, I, I think that is makes me um, somewhat optimistic that at some point, you know, we'll likely see some um, some legislation proceeding. What that looks like, I think, will be influenced, obviously, by uh, future political events as well as how this litigation uh, proceeds. But I, I'd be doubtful that we're going to get um, kind of meaningful across-the-board legal certainty here for at least another, you know, probably year or two at, at the earliest. Tom, thank you so much for being with us. And we're going to have to have you back to discuss this as more of these cases come up. And we didn't even touch on how the commodity laws work with this, but you really gave us a good foundation and, and sort of left the questions out there that are outstanding that, that the regulators are going to have to deal with, that the legislators are going to have to deal with, and that, that our audience is going to have to do, deal as they understand how the blockchain is going to evolve in the context of the investments that are surrounding the, the blockchain. Yeah, well, th thanks for having me. Look forward to talking to you again. All right, thanks so much. And we'll see you all in our next episode of Blockchain Explained. Thanks for listening to another episode of Blockchain Explained. 
Please note, nothing in this podcast should be construed as investment advice. Want more clear-eyed analysis of this exciting technology? Search for Digital Assets Forum at the Wilson Center for research, event recordings, and more. Want to ask our hosts a question? Write to stip, S-T-I-P, at wilsoncenter.org with your thoughts. Thanks again, and we'll see you next time on Blockchain Explained.